You're listening to the Today's Wills and Probate podcast, one of the leading sources of information for the wills and probate sector. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todayswillsandprobate.co.uk and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Hello, everybody, and welcome along to the Today's Wills and Probate podcast. Uh, Today, I'm joined by Louise Levine, who is the International Asset Services Manager at uh, Finders International. It's great of you to join us today, Louise. Thanks very much indeed. We're going to be talking about uh, international asset services, believe it or not, today. We've got a sort of few questions that we're, we're going to go through, but I think uh, my first question is, what on earth is an international asset services manager? Quite right. It's somewhat niche, I think it would be fair to say. (laughs) So uh, the role of an international asset services manager is to step in when assistance is needed by, for example, estate practitioners, private client solicitors, uh, its executors directly sometimes at banks, um, really anyone dealing with an estate of someone who's died. It usually, but not completely exclusively, involves somebody who has passed away, leaving assets that are located overseas. So we could be talking about shares that are registered overseas in a foreign country. We could be talking about a bank account overseas even property or land sometimes, uh, investment accounts, for example. And what tends to link those assets is that they can almost uniformly present a new range of problems to uh, an estate practitioner or an executor who is more used to dealing with assets in the United Kingdom. I think there is a sense that, I think this is fair to say, that we live in this globalised world where everything is a lot more um, similar uh, than it perhaps once was and that really isn't true especially when a death takes place it's almost as if a international security gate comes crashing down that nobody knows this um, when a death has taken place and a whole series of barriers and hurdles and hoops can present themselves to estate administrators who think that all they need to do is say well here I am I'm the executor can you now close this account or dispose of this asset and um, thank you very much could you do it quite quickly and usually nothing of the sort happens and a succession of of obstacles appears before the uh, unwary practitioner I think it's also fairly safe to say that anything like this has a tendency to get pushed to the back of the queue when it comes to dealing with estate administration. So it can often be the case that probate has been obtained, the grant is in place, quite a lot of the overall estate administration has been finalised before the practitioners or the executives realise that there is this rather looming problem of an asset that is proving quite stubborn uh, and difficult to deal with. And that's very much where I come in. And this is because foreign jurisdictions operate in different ways to the UK. That's quite right. They all have their own ways of doing things. And I think perhaps slightly counterintuitively, one of the countries that comes up the most often for us, far and away, is the USA. And part of the reason for that is precisely that it is a federation of states. Every state has its own laws and rules. And not only that, every bank within a country or a state in the US has its own rules that that it is subject to. Um, So, for example, a US institution is subject to federal rules across the US, but also to state rules. And that can mean that you simply can't assume anything when it comes to dealing with an asset there. What worked for one account may not work for another. 
And similarly, you are dealing with shares and you would think that the world that we live in means that shares are pretty much the same everywhere. But again, couldn't be farther from the truth. Every transfer agent, which is the US equivalent of a share registrar, every registrar everywhere has its own rules that it is subject to and its own reporting requirements, which means that the requirements for dealing with shares in a different country may differ widely. The requirements in Australia are different from those in Hong Kong. Hong Kong differs from Singapore. Singapore differs from everywhere in the USA and so on and so on. So it can get really convoluted if, as often happens, you have a person who has died domiciled in the United Kingdom with what once would have looked like a very standard, straightforward share portfolio with a lot of uh, FTSE 500 type stock. And perhaps 30 years ago, um, a lot of that stock was all London listed because a lot of them were dual listed. They were listed on the London Stock Exchange and also back home, wherever that might be. It could be Johannesburg, it could be Hong Kong, for example, or Australia. And then over the years, uh, what typically tends to happen is that perhaps as somebody gets older, they're not managing their financial affairs quite as assertively as they once did. Maybe you know they let the portfolio just sit there. And over those years, some of the companies that were dual listed delisted from the London Stock Exchange, leaving that person with this portfolio that now contains shares that are only listed in Hong Kong or Singapore or Australia or Canada or all of the above. And that's where you then find yourself as an executor dealing with that person's estate once they've died. That's where you find yourself dealing with a whole raft of new requirements per jurisdiction and sometimes even per holding. to give you an example, somebody who died leaving, again, that very standard share portfolio, they could well end up with shares listed on Australia. And if they're high enough value, then a resale is going to be needed. But if you were to look at the same scenario and they had shares that were once dual listed in London and Hong Kong and are now only listed in Hong Kong, when they're dealing with the estate, they're presented with a whole new set of problems because they will need to reseal. Um, There is technically a small estate procedure in Hong Kong, but it's so difficult and expensive that you may as well reseal and you may have relatively low value stock and a serious question mark over cost benefit when it comes to dealing with all of the necessary work. And that's even before you've actually tried to sell the shares, which is exceptionally difficult in the Far East because they have this system called a central depository and opening a new central depository account for foreigners is difficult verging on impossible, depending on the jurisdiction. I sense that um, it, it, this is this this traditional can of worms, isn't it? You you seem to sort of yes. open up one thing, which leads to something else, which leads to something else, which ultimately, as you say, has this sort of cost benefit scenario. H- how often are you advising people? Do you know actually this really isn't worth it? And to what mm. sort of value is it not worth it? Or does that depend on the jurisdiction? Very much so. It depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on the requirements. Uh, It depends also very much on the estate practitioners that are involved and what their own company, for example, their own law firm might say is a standard procedure to say, no, we have to deal with everything because this is our responsibility. Others might say, absolutely, no, the cost benefit is disproportionate. It's not working. It doesn't make any sense. I think it's important to say that I'm not in a position to tell anybody what to do. Absolutely not. I'm very much there for guidance and support. And quite a lot of the time, you know, where part of the service that I offer is I'll talk to estate practitioners and give them a second opinion and say, well, this is my view. This is what you're looking at. You've got this asset worth not very much and this huge amount of potentially amount of work to do. Um, But it is absolutely a decision that they have to make 
in concert with the executors to decide, do we actually have a conversation about abandonment? But in my opinion, as an experienced practical intermediary, I can certainly look at a situation and say, I don't like the look of this. A really good example of that, and this comes up a lot, would be South Africa. Um, unfortunately, often through very similar circumstances in terms of that share portfolio where you had potentially dual listed stock, dual listed on the London and the Johannesburg Stock Exchange 20, 30 years ago. Now it's just in Johannesburg. So what you find yourself with, and this happens very often, is a relatively small holding in Johannesburg. You are going to be dealing with Computer Share South Africa and you're going to be resealing the English and Welsh grant of probate or the Scottish confirmation. And in that scenario, legal costs in South Africa are typically about 3.65 odd percent of the value of the estate in South Africa. But where you have low value assets, all bets are off. There is really you know, minimum fees apply. So the percentage, in fact, could be a much higher proportion of the value of the South African estate. And many times I've come across a scenario where the assets are worth perhaps less than £2,000. And I can guarantee that the legal costs, even if you, you know, didn't use me, even if you just dealt with it directly, the legal costs are going to be far higher than the value of the asset itself. And at that point, if I were being asked, would I do this work? Would I help uh, an estate practitioner to do it? I would be saying, I really can't recommend that that's a good course of action. It's turning an asset into a liability. And it's a question of potentially conflicting duties. The executors have duties to the estate, of course, to gather in the assets, but also to preserve the estate residue. And I think that sometimes that's a helpful conversation to be able to have with the family, with the executors, perhaps with the beneficiaries who want to know what's going on and why aren't we getting every single penny that we can. You can realistically say, well, which of those duties is, is the one that's most important right now? To gather everything in to the nth degree or to have a practical, realistic conversation that this asset is going to be troublesome to get back. I mean, I should mention that South African probate and South African resealing is a very lengthy, very torturous process. The master of the High Court in South Africa is minutely involved all the way through the procedure. And lots of things have to be done in person. You have to do estate tax clearance in person in South Africa. So there was a lot to do, a lot of back and forth. So even if you don't just take the South African legal fees, you've got time at this end as well, preparing all of that work. So at that point, realistic conversations have to be had, I think, about those costs. And so what happens to the assets if you just mm. abandon them, for want of a better word? That's a good question, because, again, it very much depends on the jurisdiction. But I think that in some places, once you've started down the road, abandonment, abandonment may not actually even be an option. And I know that for some law firms, abandonment also is simply not an option. It's not something that they as a firm would say is an acceptable outcome when you're dealing with the winding up of an estate. And for closure purposes, provided the residue actually can afford to settle something and deal with something, even if the cost benefit isn't right, then they'll go ahead and do that. In some places, an asset will just sit there forever. You might continue to get, I mean, this is a very classic scenario. You might continue to get, if it's a shareholding, tiny dividends coming through for years. And they'll be coming through to an old address. And I think it's worth mentioning, this is often how, in fact, assets end up being accidentally abandoned. It's because towards the end of somebody's life, there's a very 
typical chain of events that can very often happen is someone gets older, frailer, they're not managing their affairs very well, they get moved, and maybe more than once, maybe residential accommodation into nursing accommodation and so on. And addresses aren't being updated. So for example, somebody might have completely forgotten that they had this small shareholding listed in South Africa or listed in Hong Kong. And dividends are going to an old address. And the, the address by the time this person passes away could be three, four addresses old by then. And invariably, any goodwill that might once have been had from the current occupier of that address probably evaporates at some point and things just go in the bin or they get returned undelivered. In the US, a very specific chain of events will eventually kick off when an asset has been abandoned. Because in the US and in other jurisdictions as well, they have a process called escheatment. So every US state has escheat laws. And it's the process whereby an asset is treated as dormant or abandoned. And it is sent to the unclaimed property department of the relevant US state. And if it shares, they will immediately be encashed. So that what remains is a cash sum. Now, the executors can claim that sum in perpetuity from the state, but it is not always an easy process. A lot of assets go to the state of Delaware because about, this is something I've been told informally, about 70% of US companies incorporated Delaware. It has a very pro-business legal and regulatory environment. So it's very popular for this. But what that then means is that Delaware has a billions strong unclaimed property fund with assets from people from all over the world. A lot of British people's assets will end up with the state of Delaware and they can claim the estate can claim at any time. But Delaware claims tend to take from six to eight months at minimum. And you tend to have to go back and back and back again, sending documents. They want something else. And, uh, you know, let's hope that the executors are able to furnish two forms of ID because both will be needed. And it's very difficult to persuade them um, that it's quite difficult for people outside of the US reform to provide, especially if they're elderly and they're having a driver's license, their passport's out of date. Uh, you then in a process almost of negotiation, trying to work out what to supply instead. So it can be a very, very lengthy process. In other countries, abandoned assets will simply sit there till kingdom come. And as far as I can see, very minimal efforts, if any, are made to track down the owners of those assets. In the US, there are processes, there are companies that will specialise in doing just this, and they'll do it for a fee. And sometimes they will actually engage with the owners of those assets, in other words, the, you know, the institutions, the financial institutions, to try to encourage the reunification of assets with the owners. Um, in other countries, as far as I can see, nothing at all is done. You know, I've seen estates where absolutely minuscule Hong Kong dividends from tiny shareholdings will just keep on coming through for years and years and years and years. And it's very much a decision, you know, the executors and the law firm involved in the estate administration, how far do they want to deal with this? You know, can they tolerate having posts coming through? I know that in some cases the, the post gets redirected to the law firm and it's just not an acceptable outcome for them to say, we're going to be receiving these dividends and doing nothing with them for years. Obviously, you've also got, you know, uh, the SRA regulation and perhaps they've got eyes on that and saying, we, we really can't have that position. We been chatting uh, ahead of this and I was asking you about whether Brexit had an impact on your role uh, and how easy your role was but I was surprised by your answer because you said actually in some respects it's now easier than it used to be. Yes although I think easy is a, uh, a word that I would use with caution but you're right it's put it this way it has simplified 
the view more. So to briefly explain, and I, I should say I'm in no way a Brexit or Brussels 4 expert here, but uh, touching on it as, as often happens just in practical terms, what happened was that the Brussels 4, uh, otherwise known as beautifully known as Regulation 650 stroke 2012, Brussels 4 came in and it gave um, UK owners of real estate, for example, in continental Europe, the ability to choose the domicile of England and Wales, which wouldn't otherwise have been the case previously. Um, the very rough rule of thumb, and I'm being extremely brief here in saying this, is that where there is real estate in continental Europe, you know, land or property, generally speaking, it is uh, it devolves to the law of the place where the property is situated rather than the law of the domicile of that person. Um, the English and Welsh concept of domicile is not something that which continental Europe understands or uh, even respects in many cases. So the confusion that came in when Brussels 4 was introduced was that, let's say you had property in rural France and a local notary would be presented on the death of the person with a, you know, the suggestion that this person had chosen English and Welsh domicile. Now, it's important to say that French notaries in particular, but notaries all over um, civil code countries, which is most of Europe and, and much, much of Spanish speaking world and the French speaking world. Um, in civil code countries, the role of the notary is very, very important. They are essentially an arm of the government. They are almost an arm of the court. They have the ability to make decisions about estate distribution. So my informal view at that time during uh, the imposition of Brussels 4 was good luck getting a rural French notary to accept English and Welsh rules that would govern real estate in France. And what we were seeing and finding is that, yes, in some cases it wasn't simple, it wasn't straightforward. The whole point of it was that it was meant to be very simple and easy. And I think what has simplified is that the withdrawal, Brexit, simply takes us back to the position that I think informally we're always in, which is that two wills is better than one. If you have real estate in a civil code country, for example, make a will in that jurisdiction, make sure it's good for that jurisdiction and make sure, of course, this is even more important that they don't cancel each other out. And by doing so, you've done everything you can to lay a good foundation for it not being a hellish drama after death of trying to work out which law applies in which place. Not everywhere in continental Europe is the same. Some jurisdictions, it's a great deal more straightforward than others. And some of the oldest, ironically enough, in, in terms of the way that their laws have been founded, Italy, Greece, have the most complex way in which the law is dealt with. So in places like that, it's even more important to make sure that you have goodwill for the jurisdiction in which that, uh, that real estate is situated. I've seen a, a scenario where there was a property in France that ended up being um, divvied up essentially and passed out to first cousins and friends who were paying huge rates of tax, 60% the highest, 60% um, rate of tax uh, on property. Had everybody understood that, had the deceased in that scenario taken good advice and made a French will, they could have perhaps understood that that wouldn't have been a good decision to make. It would have been better to make sure that it was dealt with under French law and it would have been great and more straightforward and there would have been tax savings for everybody. There are clearly a huge number of pitfalls that you've identified throughout the course of this discussion when it comes to international assets. What are your top tips for practitioners when it comes to 
advising clients, writing wills, estate planning, uh, to make sure that they've got good practice and planning in place, particularly where the individual's got overseas assets? I can perhaps best answer your question by by giving a couple of examples, really, of, of where it all went wrong. Um, I'm actually working at the moment on an estate where the gentleman was a very keen investor with capital letters. He obviously dabbled in stocks and shares all over the place. He was a keen penny stock investor. What that tended to mean, and often does with penny stock investors, is that he ended up with a complete mess of a set of shareholdings. There was paper, there was a lack of paper, there were tiny dividends coming through, there were things that appeared to be valuable, which turned out not to be. It was an absolutely awful mess. On another side of the coin, I would think of another case I I did work on in the past, where the situation was that the deceased owner of assets had been very secretive. He hadn't talked to anybody about what his assets were. He didn't share any information. There was a massive lack of information about what he owned. There was an understanding that he had had wealth and that it had gone somewhere, but extremely little information about where it had gone and what to do. So the process essentially became scrabbling after, trying to find these little tiny threads of detail about what he might have held so that we could try to work out is this value actually value? Is there anything there at all? And it is by no means straightforward to get that information from asset holding institutions. If you were talking, we mentioned earlier about continental Europe, as civil code jurisdictions, banks there are just not going to release to an executor for the asking a bank balance. They won't do it. They'll say we need a succession certificate, which itself is a lengthy, problematic thing to obtain. And coming back to the previous gentleman that I mentioned, in that scenario, A great deal of time had to be spent working through endless amounts of paperwork, old share certificates for restricted US stock, which turned out to be worthless over and over again. How much time do you end up spending going through all of this, trying to find value, trying to work out what has no value so you can drop it as quickly as possible and stop wasting resources, estate resources on it? So I think the tips and the suggestion, the first one is absolutely to encourage your clients to keep good records. And you can't stop people from being secretive about money. Um, It's the nature of things. But perhaps to encourage someone who you know is secretive about money and their affairs or has very complex family affairs, making them want to be secretive, to encourage them to find a trusted person to talk to about their assets so that somebody knows what's going on. You know, it's not saying everybody has to talk to everybody, and they won't anyway. We know this from life and reality and the uh, definite increase in contentious probate that's uh, you know, very much a story at the moment. So we know that's not necessarily going to happen, but really to encourage them and to stress that once they've gone, their family, their bereaved family, are going to be spending hours upon hour upon hour of distressing time trying to pick through the rubble, as it were, and try to work out what was going on and what was happening, you know, not leaving people to have this work because it can represent hours and hours and hours and hours of work trying to put this information back together. Doing, uh, keeping addresses updated. That's another really, really important one. That's the process whereby, you know, assets end up being abandoned because the address wasn't kept up to date, dividends are going out to the wrong address. And if they are high value holdings, and we certainly see plenty of those, those dividends can be a substantial source of revenue. 
for somebody who's widowed, for example. So making sure those things are up to date because it's much harder to fix once the death has taken place. That same security gate that comes crashing down, if we were talking about the US, you can't transfer shares out of the deceased person's name without a medallion guarantee stamp. So there's paperwork and bureaucracy that the executives is going to have to deal with. And some of that can be helped and maybe reconciled by making sure that if there are you know, messy, complex holdings, have you had a look at your portfolio? Have you made sure that you know what's what? Do you still believe this certificate that dates from 1986 has the value that you believe it does? Is it worth checking? Why haven't I had dividends on this holding for quite some time? You know, has some corporate action happened, uh, stock splits or acquisitions or delistings, something that might change the nature of what I hold? It's just encouraging the people to really spend some time doing that in terms of winding up their affairs and thinking about them, you know, not letting those apparently small issues become a disproportionately large element of the estate administration afterwards, which is certainly reflected on the kind of work that I do tend to see. You know, sometimes it's not a big holding that I'm being asked to help with. It's not a large proportion of the estate, but it is disproportionately proving to be time consuming. Another element always worth talking about and thinking about is that cost benefit that we've talked about a couple of times already. Making practical decisions, having conversations with the estate at the earliest possible stage to say, look, this is what we've got. This is what we think is going to have to be done. You know, I, I give second opinions all the time on exactly that subject. And to say, you know, have you got something which it's looking like it's going to be disproportionately troublesome? And could you do something about it sooner that might help that? So, for example, you know, we're seeing a massive increase in people with offshore wealth, but not high wealth, not the kind of high net worth wealth that you might associate with offshore companies. Maybe £11,000. I see that quite frequently in Jersey or Guernsey or the Isle of Man. And that's going to require probate afterwards. Has that been considered? Is that something that could be talked about? Those are the kinds of things that I would probably say. There's not always a great deal you can do. The whole reason people don't deal with their assets is the same reason people don't deal with wills because they don't really want to contemplate it. They don't like to think about these issues. It all seems a bit morbid. Maybe your family don't let you talk about it. I actually spoke with someone the other day and that exact situation has happened. They wanted to talk about planning and they wanted to talk about their assets and their family just wouldn't engage because they didn't like it. They felt like it was a morbid thing to do. So I don't think that's going to change in a hurry, but where possible, it's certainly worth having those conversations from time to time saying, have you really had a look at your portfolio and, you know, have you looked at this property or this asset or this bank account that you had when you worked for a few years overseas? You know, is it serving you right? And do you know what's going to happen when the death takes place? We talked about uh, off off the podcast, the fact that I personally think that you've got a really interesting job. I'm sure it has its boring days, uh, <laughs> as you say, wading through paperwork. But it, it, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Louise, it's been great to chat. Thank you so much for uh, for joining the podcast. Really interesting, and um, I think you've got some you know some really interesting stories to tell as well. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Keep your ears out for future today's wills and probate podcasts. Uh, and that's it for today. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much. You're listening to the today's wills and probate podcast, one of the leading sources of information for the wills and probate sector. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todayswillsandprobate.co.uk and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.